Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to the Makom Salon. In this episode, I explore education, redesigning Jewish futures. The Makom Salon, intimate conversations with intriguing voices. Hosted by Johnny Ariel. My name is Johnny Ariel and I'm an educator seeking to have intimate conversations with intriguing voices from around the Jewish world. I want to hear from those who can share their experience and expertise on issues beneath and beyond the news headlines. At this time, our world is shaped by coronavirus, distancing, lockdown, PPE, curve flattening and the rest and will be so for a long time. And we've all learned to speak a new language, Zoomish. I'm oh so lucky that I have food and a garden and space to be able to invite guests to the salon. Produced by Macom, the education lab of the Jewish Agency. So wherever you are, thank you for listening. This salon conversation is about education. Even as the death rate from COVID-19 continues tragically to rise, there is much movement to return to some routine While summer camps and educational travel plans have been severely disrupted, schools, youth movements, cultural events and synagogues have moved online. Like so much else in our lives, these times give us the opportunity to look candidly at ourselves, our achievements and our shortcomings. Today I'm eager to ask questions as to the nature of education, its purposes and its modalities. One of my favourite definitions of education comes from Richard Peters. He said, Education is the initiation into worthwhile pursuits whilst respecting the autonomy of the learner. For me, it begs each of us to answer, which pursuits do we consider worthwhile? How do we know if someone is initiated? How do we respect the learner's autonomy? And I'm delighted to be joined today by two spirited colleagues, Dr. Miri Schlissel from Jerusalem and Dr. David Breifman from New York to help me explore. David and Miri first met when I led a Macomb seminar for chief inspectors from the Israel Ministry of Education designed to explore the Jewish community of New York in New York. I was curious how this second encounter by Zoom would play out. Miri is the head of pedagogical affairs in the Ministry of Education, so effectively, She's Israel's chief education officer. She founded the High School for Girls, or Torah, in Jerusalem. She served as a national supervisor for Bible studies. And she holds a PhD in Tanakh and is a graduate of the Mandel School for Educational Leadership. David is the chief executive officer of the Jewish Education Project. He's worked in Australia, Israel and North America. And he earned his PhD in education and Jewish studies and continues to research Jewish teens. He's a founder of the Jewish Futures Conference. And by my reckoning, he's a graduate of every fellowship going at the Hebrew University, Wexner, Schusterman and Leading Edge. So welcome, David. Welcome, Miri. Welcome to all our listeners. Welcome to the Makom Salon. L'chaim. David, 
how are you in your milieu? What's happening by you? What's going on? Um, look, I'm in Brooklyn in New York and I haven't left really my four block radius in about, you know, 10, 12 weeks now. And it's, um, it, it wears down on you. It's depressing and things are tough. And, you know, we are, we know many people whose family members have been sick and, um, people have died and I've attended more shiva calls online than I care to, to name. It's, it's, um, it's tough. And then our work goes on and that is our bright spot as well that, the milieu that I'm living in right now is a mixture of my my immediate block radius of where we live, and then also we have reached more Jewish educators in the last two months than perhaps we have ever reached in the 100 year old history of our organisation. And the number of interactions I've had with Jewish educators um, is um, really stimulating and really inspiring. So it's a bit of like two sides of the same coin happening simultaneously. And I would admit that the hardest part actually is juxtaposing life between the, that balance. Um, not always so easy to do. It is sobering to hear of David's two-sided coin, of death and disruption, and of adaptability and resilience. Whilst we do not yet understand the behaviour of coronavirus and as to what fully explains why its impact varies so much from place to place, I wondered how Miri has experienced this crisis from her perch at the summit of the Israeli Ministry of Education. Well, since I work in the Ministry of Education in Jerusalem, uh, we had to switch from Friday to Sunday from teaching as usual to teach from distance. And it was, you know, this is something that uh, we were talking about and we discussed it and we thought about it and then suddenly it happened. And when it happens, everything looks different. And you, you, you ask yourself the question, what should I do? What, what to take care of? To take care of the, the youngest, to take care of those who have to have the matriculation this year, to, to look at teachers, to look at, at parents. Suddenly all the world, world around us is, is combining in different ways. You work from home and um, it's amazing. It's very different and it's very difficult because I miss all those conversations between people that are not in the meeting, but are between the meetings. And, and our life is too much focused on the meeting themselves and doing things and all, all the things around become less part of our life. The stark differences between the large number of deaths and severe infections in New York juxtaposed with Israel and the impact of lockdown and its consequences leads me to wonder about the undertones of our conversation today. What might help bridge these communities. Anytime Jewish educators are faced with change, the big, bold, beefy question emerges in the open society that so fondly beckons. Why does being Jewish matter? When our common humanity is to the fore in the pandemic, one can easily wonder why being connected to the Jewish people matters at all. Miri, what do you make of the tangled web of commitments of being human, Israeli, and a member of the Jewish people? Well, in Israel, uh, the question hardly raises because you're a passive Jew in Israel. You're born into it. I think that this is something that when you when you live abroad, you, you really challenge this question almost every day of your life. But in Israel, the question itself doesn't appear that much. Therefore, it's, it's a different challenge to, to create this kind of uh, commitment to be an active Jew when it is so usual to be a passive one. Therefore, the, the question is, 
how to how to create this activity. And I think that uh, in these days, one of the interesting things that happened is that a lot of things are being changed. And this is an opportunity to open things and think once again, because actually one of the questions is, if it happens all around the world, what's unique about us? What's unique about our kind of uh, solutions? Is it national solutions of the state? Do we think about something that, what happens when Jews in, in New York are suffering that much? Does it mean something for us? This, this was a point of asking the question of what's the, the, the meaning of being Jew right now? Are you more familiar or more empathizing with Jews in the States that they suffer that much? Or is it something global? And this, is a, this was a kind of a question that raised the understanding that it is something important of being a Jew. And it matters when other Jews in the world are suffering. This corona created um, a shift. What we were talking about, moving the chi, okay? It moved a lot of things that forced us to think once again about things that we actually never thought of. And this is an amazing, uh, amazing um, experience. And David, who is your people at this time? Are there Jewish choices that you are eager to offer young Jews? I think your question, the premise before the question is just important, at least for me to touch on for one moment. And that is, is all of humanity going through this corona at the same time or at the same speed? And is it truly a universal phenomenon? On one hand, we could say yes. On the other hand, I have never felt more distant and from other people in my Jewish space. When my Israeli friends tell me they're going back to school this week and I might not be going back to school for another six months or my students might not or my children or when the Hasidic neighborhood less than a kilometer away, less than a mile away from my house is still having some sort of funeral service en masse. Who is my people? Who is not my people is a really um, important question. Who I feel closest to right now. I think that premise requires some sort of, at least for me, an internal exploration. Look, my grandmother, 94 years old, is a Holocaust survivor. She never asked the question about choice or that never comes into her mind. For her, the only question that's ever mattered through her entire life is, is it good for the Jews? It didn't matter what we were talking about. If something about Jewish people or Israel came on the news or the radio, we knew automatically as a family that we all had to be especially quiet and we have this special connection. I can understand it and I can really try and empathize and relate to it. But the question of choice, especially outside of Israel today, and I think it is one of the defining characteristics which differentiates the Israel from other communities, it's less about choice for me and more about the freedom of choice. And having the freedom to actually make a conscious decision is really, really central to what it means to live at least in the Western world when it comes to one's Jewish identity. The way I try and frame it now for a young person is that if once the question that generations were asking was, is it good for the Jews? The question we're now asking is, is being Jewish good for either oneself, one society, or for the world at large? Well, that's great. Um, I, I want to push you onwards a bit, David, and say, well, you've spent significant time in Israel on the Machon at the Hebrew University, numerous visits as a participant, as a madrich, uh, a leader, and as a staffer and a director. In, with the Israeli Jews that you've met, whether they were here or you've met in your various places in Australia, St. Louis, or New York, which are the three unknown figures of American Jewry or world Jewry that you think 
should become household names for all Israelis. I'm reluctant to give a name. I think every Israeli Jew needs to experience Jewish summer camp. And I can call that counselor at summer camp any name I want them to. Let's just call them Miriam. Like, to see thousands of Jewish kids every summer experiencing the joy of being Jewish with their friends, um, with culture, with music, is a very jarring relationship for someone who's had a connection with what being Jewish means associated with a particular type of orthodoxy, which is highly connected to a political structure in Israel. And to see kids free and enjoying Judaism in the light of a summer camp, I get you to meet any camp counselor any time of day. The other person I would get you to meet would be um, my local rabbi, my lesbian rabbi at my reform congregation, where I go to only a few times a year, but I am there every Yom Kippur for Yizkor as well. And to see that sanctuary filled with thousands of Jews, literally, coming together in joy and in sorrow in that environment is testament to the oppositional force, which is the reality that many Israelis still cling to, that Jewish life in the diaspora is disintegrating, disappearing, that all Jews are marrying non-Jews and therefore not raising their kids Jewish. It's just not the case. There is vibrancy here and creativity here, which is absolutely phenomenal. And I guess that's the last people I'm reluctant to try and introduce any Israeli to because, you know, statistically, I'm not normal, right? I get that. I went on my own. You mentioned, right? It's possible to live a vibrant Jewish life here. And I think that's a really important piece. Now, I just say one thing, which is, I think, important. You might say to me, Jews were saying the same thing in 15th century Spain and in 1930s Germany and All of the stuff that I'm talking about is some sort of mirage of history. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm not. We're not going anywhere. Jews have always lived a vibrant life outside of Israel. And I don't use the word diaspora like specifically here. But in many ways, the only difference between me living here now or in St. Louis or Australia and the Jew living in Israel, the only difference is that my grandparents made a choice at a particular point in history to go left to Australia rather than going to Palestine at that point in time. That's a choice that my grandparents made. I don't regret it for a second, but in that regard, um, we are more similar than we perhaps often think, but some of the distinctions are really real as well. Uh, Mary, let's ask the the reverse question. Uh, Uh, I would like to relate to what you said, David, at the end. Yeah, please. Please, and add in, add in two, which of the three unknown Israelis, either from history or today, that you think should be household names for world Jews? Since David was talking about figures, I, I, I thought that maybe, maybe create it, uh, describe it as a figure is important because this will make the difference between what you're saying, that all of us are the same. We are the same, definitely, but there's the difference. I, I'm talking about small, very important and inspiring group of young men which are hold, which are holding the, the responsibility of being rabbis of kibbutzim, kibbutzim datim in Israel. And one of the names that I'm talking about in particular is the uh, Rav Eli Ofran, which is the, Rav, uh, the rabbi of the Kibbutzat Yavne, which is a very old tradition kibbutz in Israel. And um, he is the grandson of uh, Professor Yishayahu Leibovitch. And he learned to be a psychologist, and then he became to be a, uh, he learned to be a rabbi. And right now he he serves as a rabbi in in a kibbutz. Now, being a rabbi in a kibbutz is a very unique position because you you have a community which uh, 
in a way chose you, but in many other ways do not really believe that uh, you have something to say about their life. And you have to look at, at a, a range of uh, issues and uh, challenges that I don't think any rabbi in the world can challenge him about. How do you, uh, what do you do with the, with the, the craft in Shemitah? And how do you, and what do you do in Shabbat with cows? And how do you milk them? And uh, what do you do with people that have different kind of problems? Uh, and uh, how do you create the tradition of a kibbutz and make sure the people that some of them are really related to to, um, to halacha and some of them are not? How do you help them be one community? And in a way, the kibbutz rabbi is holding in his hands the real world, the real world of halacha, which which includes all the all the issues of life at the same time, at the same place, and trying to figure out what does it mean to be a religious Jew in modern Israel, in the entire environment of life. Therefore, I think this is very unusual, very unique, challenging, and I, and he's a young man, and I look at him, and I, and I see others in those kibbutzim, and I say, these are the figures of, that make me um, optimistic about, uh, about uh, orthodox uh, modern Orthodox life in Israel. I would like to give another two names, two names of, uh, of um, women. One of them is, I think, is not unknown. Her name is Adi Altuler, and she is a phenomenon. The, the girl, when she was 16, and my oldest boy is 16, was he 16? He's in her age, so I looked at her, and he's talented, but you cannot compare her to anyone. What she created in her life are things that are really precious. She created a youth movement for young uh, disabled kids, which if she heard me say disabled, she would probably hate me for that. So I'm just describing. And on the other hand, she created what we call Zikaron Basalon, which is a tradition that she invented about putting in, in, in the salon, and you're not, Johnny, you're not creating the first salon, putting in the salon in the night of the, the day for the memorial of the Holocaust in Israel, survivals that speak to young people in the salon and telling the story of their life, something so simple, so powerful that she created. And I'm thinking about the range from youngsters that had problems till people that came from other places, from the Holocaust, and the, her ability to touch the other people and make them active. She demands all of us to be acting and to, to do things with our identity, with our tradition, with our world. And she she calls for action. And the third figure is Professor Sarite Kraus. She is a professor uh, that uh, responsible in the Barilan University for the artificial intelligence sector in uh, computer science. She is religious a very religious woman. She has three kids of her own and two adopted. One of them is coming from a girl from Ethiopia. And uh, because she thinks the word is, uh, is, uh, is, has, oh, you know, she's very talented. She works in the States. She works in Europe, but she's, she, she's so modest and she's so, uh, she's so committed for those different kind of, of aspects of life. And I see, I think that these are kind of people that make me, as I said, very optimistic about what uh, Jewish life in Israel can offer to people from all around the world. I want to now, as opposed to touching on something where we can each see in the other something of perhaps a value, a virtue, I want to now touch on something which is much, much tougher. Politics shapes lives. Part of the 
idea of Zionism in its most fundamental way was for Jews as a collective to take power back into their own hands. But politics divides Jews, certainly here in Israel and in the US and all over. But it's not only between Democrats and Republicans or Likudnikim and Meretznikim. It is also a fault line that you can possibly see between liberal Jews, wherever they are, and let's say conservative Jews, wherever they are. I want to ask you, David, how should education deal with politics? Should we embrace politics and explore it with young people and talk it through and role play it? Should we avoid it because it ends up risking something about the collective nature of the Jewish people, a sense of solidarity? Or should we minimize it and put it in its place? What do we do with this in deeply, deeply divided societies that seem to be all over the Western world? David? Yeah, so let me start with just a statement or an assumption that we're all good educators out there and we know that all education should be age appropriate. So the answer I'm giving now. I'm going to allow you to make the judgment as to whether you're bringing this into your gun or your kindergarten or whether you're dealing with 12th grade students or adults. That aside, look, I'm from the school which believes that um, all education is inherently political. And it's as much as what we do talk about and we don't talk about that whatever we're doing is is a political action. If Jewish education is to be relevant in the world today and to prove its inherent worth and value to humanity, It must contemplate and embrace the current issues that people are struggling with, and that includes the very political struggles that you're referring to. If we avoid that which is most important to young people today, we run the risk of being completely irrelevant. If we don't believe we have what to say on the most important issues of today, I actually think we are irrelevant. So do I want Jewish education in North America to be talking about climate control and gun control and upcoming elections and divisions between Jews and Israeli politics? I see no other alternative. Mary? I think that politics means, the real politics means to be, to, to take a stand, to say, to struggle, to say what you believe in and, and what are you willing to pay price in order to fulfill. And this is about being a politic. And uh, what I'm seeing is that, that um, youngsters in Israel Sometimes they have opinions, but they don't really have have the 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 ability to explain to to stand for to argue for their opinions. It's very sh- the 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 conversation, the political conversation in Israel is shallow, and this is a compliment. Uh, therefore, um, what I dream of is youngsters that do know how to challenge others and how to uh, to express themselves in political issues about being here about doing things which are I- which are issues and uh, in a way to know to know to to express uh, i'm i'm not afraid about of, of of opinions i'm really afraid and worried about the lack of opinion the willing or wishing to be to just live life without uh, any meaning I share both Miri and David's sense that avoiding politics in educational settings is negligent. In seeking to nurture active, engaged citizens, we should treasure role models who are faithfully taking care of the community's needs. As our Jewish prayer has it, 
And yet we do not seem to have developed adequately a pedagogy that galvanizes the learner to consider all ideas, values and perspectives that are germane to the issue at hand across a very broad spectrum, even as we cultivate a commitment to political processes and actions. Socrates was reportedly famous for saying, the unexamined life is not worth living, that only by reflecting, thinking, exploring, do you actually come to a view, you as an individual, as to what is worth living. So I want to wonder as to how might this best be accomplished. Should the curriculum be individualized? I mean, we certainly have the technological means today to tailor-make everything for a market of one. Or should there be a common core that all Jews, wherever they are, should learn, even if it's modest? If so, what should it consist of? And why should we have a common core? David? So I hope I'm not giving away any trade secrets, Johnny, but... He did give us some of these questions in advance to prepare for. Um, and this one stumped me. I, I, I didn't know how to respond. Um, and I was really troubled by that because on one hand, I know that all education needs to be individualized. I know multiple intelligence. I know people learn in different ways. I know my two kids learn in different ways. And yet everything we do in Jewish education is focused on these group experiences, often at the expense of the individual, to the point where it's sometimes conformity, which is the, the norm that we, we expect people to just to adapt into this given situation. What troubled me even more was that if you had asked me when I was a madrich in Habonim Draw the answer to this question, I could have given you a core curriculum. When I was teaching in a day school, I could have told you what the core corpus of Jewish knowledge ought to be, or a Hillel director, or running a teen program. And now I find myself at this 30,000 foot position, or however many feet, and like, I guess my answer is that it's really setting dependent and I'm agnostic that if more people speak Hebrew, I'm really happy. And if more people speak Yiddish, I don't know if I'm any less happy. Or if more young people are watching cultural pieces of American society and pointing out Jewish references because that resonates with them, or they're reading more Israeli literature, I think I'm agnostically happy about all of those things. And for me to start demanding a core corpus of Jewish knowledge or experience, I don't. I think that's going to be counterproductive in the world today and push a form of orthodoxy, small o, that I just don't, I think we've gone beyond that as a people. I'm not saying that any type of Jewish experience matters and that equates to Jewish education. It's some form of learning, but for it to be constituted as an educational experience, I think my core would be I would love to have some sort of facilitated process that allows reflection to take place that enables the individual learner to make the meaning for them which makes the most sense to lead their lives. I'm waiting just to let that drop. <laughs> Miriam. Wow. What do you make of it? The individual versus the collective, you know, one of the ways of casting what American society is, it's an individualistic society. One of the ways of casting what Israel is, it's a collectivist society. So if you believe perhaps that education should be countercultural, then American Jewish education should be collectivist and Israeli Jewish education should be individualist or perhaps not. Where do you stand? First of all, it's, it's, for me, it's a professional question because I'm responsible for the, the national curriculum of Israel. So um, it, it's not hypothetical. 
we, we struggle with, with this question every day about what should be part of the national curriculum and why, and what shouldn't be and why. And therefore, it, it's a big issue. What kind of, um, of uh, text I would like children, kids, uh, youth, or people in Israel to learn? And I think that one of the, the uh, main issues is to try not to read it in the beginning as an individual, but as someone which is connected to something bigger than us. I think that curriculum stands for being part of something. And uh, the idea that everyone decides to have its own beginning, uh, middle, and end is, is, is not Jewish. Judah, for me, for me, being a Jew is being part of a chain of history of many generations. And I think that curriculum should include texts that speak and relate to other texts. And I think that the curriculum has to be taught, no matter what you choose as the text, has to be taught in a rich way that gives you the understanding that you have to look once again inside things and understand that you're part of a big chain and it's your responsibility to be the next generation that creates the next um, floor on this huge uh, building that you're part of. Listening to David and Miri brings to my mind four features that I would wish to be in play as educators design and deliver their curriculum. Whatever our blessedly varied applications would be, I wonder what would happen if we could all come to share four lodestars. Firstly, Jewish time. That the calendar provides a metronomic beat for us to mark the festivals and seasons and the life cycle, enabling clusters of Jews to celebrate together, to commemorate together, however we choose to do so. Secondly, Jewish space. I want us all to carve out Jewish space at summer camps and schools and synagogues and community frameworks and in the uniquely sovereign Jewish space of the State of Israel. All of those spaces where there can be a majority of Jews to determine what is marked, what is talked about and what is encountered. Thirdly, Jewish texts. If only we could seek out and share an overlapping set of Jewish texts, however differently we choose to interpret their meaning. And fourthly, that we would always strive to make available to our learners and participants a variety of Jewish dreams and visions to be debated as to what a Jewish life lived well is imagined and really all about. So Jewish time, Jewish space, Jewish texts and Jewish dreams would orient many to something robust and filled with potential. I'm struck by Miriam David's insights that Jewish education in the contemporary world strives to balance the imperatives of the individual and the collective. I heard each of them, in their own distinctive ways, link personal passions to communal spaces and connect mandated curricula to autonomy for each learner to forge their own pathway. The coronavirus pandemic has certainly brought this perennial tension to the fore. In sum, education seems caught in a perpetual dilemma. On the one hand, educators aspire to initiate the younger generation into the wisdom of the ages. And on the other, educators seek to liberate young folk to break new ground 
to do and create things we cannot yet even imagine. So if you have the opportunity, go be initiated and liberated by learning with Miri and David. Challenge them both, forge your own path and enjoy. And that ends this episode of the Macomb Salon. Many thanks to Miri and David for their convictions and connections, for their wisdom and efforts on behalf of us all. Thanks to our producer, Osnat Fox from Macomb, the educational lab of the Jewish Agency for Israel, and to Yaniv Giladi, our sound guru. To help make sense of these times, listen to more conversations on my journey in the Macomb Salon. You can find them at macomisrael.org. Take good care, be well, and drink a lachaim to a flourishing life. <laughs>